Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWTV, 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio, reporting from New York City. After having done about six hours of elections coverage last night on I-24 News, the station stationed in Tel Aviv with outlets in French, Arabic, and English had a very special elections coverage last night. I have to really give all the respect to Michelle McCory, Tal Heinrich, to uh, Gus, the president of the uh, U.S. branch, to to um, Bob and, and, and the other guys back in Tel Aviv, Elon Aslan Levy. It was really probably the most professionally ran broadcasting uh, election special coverage experience that I've had the opportunity to join so far, at least in my career. And it was an exciting night. You had Benjamin Netanyahu and Benny Gantz neck and neck in the polls all the way until the uh, actual election booth closed in Israel, then uh, around 10 p.m. And all of a sudden, the exit polls started coming out on the Hebrew-speaking media channels. Channel 10, Channel 12, Channel 13. Then the web polls started coming out. And the results were wildly different than what actually happened in the end of the election counting through the Israeli Central Elections Commission, which is the official body charged with giving a final tally on how many votes were cast, who the uh, votes were cast for, and what the actual mandate representational system, which is how Israel's electoral system works. You don't vote for an individual you vote for a list of individuals which constitute a party or an alliance of parties. And right now, I thought we might be able to go over the results since we have been spending the last few weeks talking about this. Coming in first place by a margin of 13,000 votes, with something around 98% of the votes being counted. The Likud party, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, looks like they are on their streak for a fifth term to put him in the premiership in Israel. Coming in second place, only by margin of, like we said beforehand, 13,000 votes, is the Kahol Levan, or Blue and White Party, largely expected to lead the opposition, with Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid running that. The first big surprise of this election, besides the fact that Netanyahu was able to eke out and edge out a fifth term as Prime Minister of Israel, is, is that the ultra-Orthodox parties, those compromising the Sephardic or Middle Eastern North African Jewry representative Orthodox population in Israel, and the Ashkenazi or Eastern European of Polish-Litvak descent for the Ashkenazic ultra-Orthodox parties, were able to increase their representation by three seats. This was not expected. The Ultra-Orthodox bloc is now the second, or rather third largest bloc of votes in the Knesset, supplanting that of the Arab vote from beforehand. Then coming in fifth place, we find Hadash, or the Israeli Communist Party, or it's actually a combination of of one Jewish member of Knesset and the rest different uh, uh, Arab constituents. Some of a communist origin, some other socialists, others which find themselves lining up with uh, Arab nationalists. And this is a major defeat for them, having had a cumulative 13 seats in the last election. 
in the 2015 Knesset. And now they find themselves left with only five. When you get farther down the list and you get to the uh, next representative group, the Labor Party, the party of David Ben-Gurion, Israel's prime minister, has been decimated at the polls. Now only polling between five and six seats from an all-time high, which they had had in 2015, with 24, which is what they were able to take in the last election under the leadership of a different Labor Party chairman. It's Herzog, who was now the chairperson of the Jewish agency. I foresee the Labor Party uh, not necessarily growing smaller, but severely considering itself and its options on how it must reform, especially with beginning by kicking out Avi Gabay, the head of that party, and putting him back into the private sector. And then another surprise of the election. There was a uh, question on whether Avigdor Lieberman, who is a former defense minister, former foreign minister, someone that I actually had the opportunity to work with him and his staff when I was in Israeli politics uh, over a decade ago. And he was the individual who arguably initiated this election. Uh, The reason why this is important to note is for three reasons. The first was a disagreement over defense policy. Lieberman wanted to finally give to the Hamas-ran Gaza Strip, a lesson which would permanently change their leadership's direction in terms of their willingness to fight against Israel. Lieberman sought escalation. Ministers in the security cabinet that argued against that have since been removed from the Israeli decision-making process. I'm talking about Lieberman's uh, not arch-rival, but competitor for the defense ministry position, Naftali Bennett, who looks like he may not be serving in the next Knesset. Having gone from a stellar career as the education minister and his uh, counterpart, Ayala Shaked, as the justice minister of Israel, and now we find themselves on the outs, potentially making it back into the Knesset. They need about three or 4,000 votes, and we're still waiting on some votes to be counted by the Central Elections Commission. So when Lieberman actually quit and he took a stand, people said he was going to lose votes. The uh, public opinion polls and surveys showed that he was on the verge of not passing the electoral threshold to be able to get back in the Knesset. Uh, Mr. Lieberman has been vindicated after we find that he was able to obtain somewhere in the realm of 167,000 votes or akin to 4.15%. He is looking at between five and six seats in the Knesset. Uh, getting back to where he's at now or even potentially increasing his size. So his political gambit did one of two things. The first thing that it did is it paid off for him. He's getting back into power. The second thing that it did is it gave the opportunity to Netanyahu to consolidate right-wing dominance for the Likud party. And in addition to that, to cast off some of uh, Netanyahu's traditional political enemies. And we'll get to that in a second. But getting back down to the list, we see the Meretz Party, which is really the last left-wing party left in Israel, with uh, about 3.6% of the vote. That translates to between four and five seats. We see the United Right List. And and here's here's another surprising success for this election. Many of the pundits in the American Jewish press, the American uh, mainstream media, so we're talking about magazines like The Forward, The Jewish Exponent, um, 
the Jewish Journal out in, in, in Los Angeles, ran by David Suisa and a few others, uh, were all prognosticating that Netanyahu had to make a deal with the devil to be able to secure his fifth term. That deal being a uh, agreement with the Otsma Yehudit Party or the Jewish Power Party, and uh, an alliance that Netanyahu helped craft with Habayit Yehudi or the Jewish Home, which is the uh, traditional political home of Israel's uh, national religious population, those being individuals who are uh, religiously observant, they uh, uh, keep the Sabbath, they do serve in the army, they do work, they're not like their ultra-Orthodox counterparts, who also uh, work, but, but to a lesser extent, they're benefiting more on state benefits. But Netanyahu was able to get some seventy to 80,000 votes for the right-wing bloc by enveloping in the um, Otsmaye Odid party, but the fear of the American Jewish press and the American mainstream media was that Netanyahu had allegedly made a deal with Kahnis, Kahnis being the followers of Rabbi Meir Kahana, uh, uh, largely, uh, I mean, in, in my own opinion, he was an ethnocentrist, uh, racist, someone who uh, sought the ethnic cleansing of Arabs from Israel, which I think, in, in my personal opinion, is uh, deplorable. It's not something that any mainstream Israeli political leader should be advocating. And his party was rightly uh, banned after the 1984-1988 elections when uh, Kahane was uh, uh, put out of power. And, and he was uh, sadly, this fate should face no one. He was sadly assassinated in a, in a political assassination. And I think around uh, 1990, 1991. But no Kahanis were elected to the Knesset. Netanyahu was able to get all of those votes without having to pay any of the political repercussions. So the third political enemy that Netanyahu was able to put into the wilderness of, of the area below the electoral threshold was a man named Moshe Feiglin. This was supposed to be, according to uh, press reports, and, and, and just in general, before we get to Feiglin, the press could not have been more wrong on so many of the predictions that they had made in this election. They said that Gantz was going to be able to form a government. Here we see him as opposition leader. They said that uh, Netanyahu was facing uh, political uncertainty with members of his bloc potentially going to swing and go to bat for Gantz. We now see everyone getting behind the Netanyahu government. And they also said that this individual, Moshe Feiglin, who was on one part ultra-libertarian, trying to legalize marijuana in Israel. On the other hand, he was advocating for building a third temple where the um, Haram al-Sharif and Al-Aqsa Mosque currently rest, next to the Western Wall, and incentivizing Palestinians to move uh, out of Israel. But uh, out of all of this, we saw that Fagelin did not pass the electoral threshold. Those votes are redistributed to the Likud, to Yisrael Beitenu, Avigdor Lieberman's party, and any political enemy that Benjamin Netanyahu has had in the past 10 years since his return to power in 2009 is either now serving in the opposition or they won't be serving in the Knesset at all. If you want to talk about a mea culpa that the press has to offer, Amit Segel, a prominent reporter for Hachadoshot, which is a major Israeli uh, news agency, said, Benjamin Netanyahu 
the political genius of our generation. More after these messages. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today, or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. This is Greg Roman reporting live from New York City. I'm up here after having um, done about six hours of commentary last night on the Israeli elections. And because we have covered that subject so much, I beg to uh, offer an opinion that we have somewhat neglected the rest of the Middle East. So I was hoping that over the next 10 to 20 minutes, we would be able to do a few segments and do some follow-up on some stories that we have not covered yet. We have a a great uh, fellow that's down in Washington, D.C. that uh, is working as our Washington, D.C. resident fellow. His name is Michael Levinson. And every day, this individual takes the best of the Middle East news, puts it into a summary, sends it to our staff. And I really want to highlight some of the stories that Micah put out there. And if you do have any questions about any of these stories, you can go on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash middle.east.forum. You can check us out on Twitter at meforum, or you can send us an email at info at meforum.org. You can also call into the studio, and we'll get you that number in a second. I'm asking Delaney to put it up on my board, our uh, communications assistant. In Sudan, in the latest crackdown against protests there, security services loyal to President Omar al-Bashir have killed at least 14 anti-government protesters taking part in a massive sit-in outside the army headquarters in the capital, Khartoum, according to activists behind the demonstration. Tuesday's deaths brought the total number of people killed during the protests and started on Saturday to 22, including five soldiers who were killed while defending the protesters, the Central Committee of Sudanese Doctors said in a statement. The sit-in outside the complex, which also houses Bashir's official residence, is the latest in a succession of anti-government demonstrations that have plunged Sudan into a major political crisis. Now, if you have any questions about this story in Sudan, 
or any other topic that we raise, you can call in at 1-888-329-3306. Again, 1-888-329-3306. I'll get a message across my board here, and then we'll be able to have you join in. Once again, 1-888-329-3306. Now, it's not just the important that you listen to what's going on in Sudan in terms of North Africa right now, feeling a little bit of a Arab Spring 2.0 reverb that's going on. But also in Algeria, we find the interim president, Abdelkader Ben Salah, promised in a televised speech on Tuesday to organize free elections after weeks of protests that led to the resignation of 20-year leader Abdelaziz Bouteflika. So Algeria... Sorry, uh, Al- Algeria. It'd be amusing if Al Jazeera actually turned into Qatar. That would be their new country's name. But Algeria, which is right next to the Sudan, finds itself in a situation where they have been able to peacefully transition. There was some protest that took place on the streets, but nothing like we saw in Cairo or nothing like we're seeing right now in Khartoum. They were able to transition to an interim leader that is promising free and fair elections in that country. Now, if Bashir is to follow suit of what happened with Algeria's former president, he has some other issues hanging over his head, quite literally, that will let you see a different transition of power in Sudan. Let's recount for a second. Omar Bashir has been in power for decades. He has an international criminal court, an ICC arrest warrant issued in his name for alleged genocide that his regime was responsible for in Darfur. If everyone remembers the Janjaweed militias, this was the um, the uh, Sudanese fighters going into South Sudan, into Darfur. There was major campaigns about the Darfur genocide back in 2006 and 2007. Uh, no one has been held accountable for those crimes. The ICC is largely blaming the president of Sudan, for the uh, committing of those atrocities. So it's not like Bashir has anywhere to go. He could step down. But where he would be able to travel to is largely suspect. So because he has a, um, a need, because he's effectively been isolated by the international community, except for maybe Saudi Arabia, Morocco, a few other Arab states, That means he's trying to double down on his power at home. Now, he's done some absurd things, or he's allegedly done some absurd things to try to stay in power. The first is, is he reshuffled his cabinet, and he actually put into power different Islamist organizations or Islamist political parties, which have led to an alliance between the Sudanese army, the Sudanese intelligence services, and also Sudanese Islamist groups. So where... In Egypt, using the example, uh, Hosni Mubarak, the former president of that country, was overthrown by a combination of the army and Islamists, the Muslim Brotherhood, working together, only to see the Muslim Brotherhood take control. Why would Omar al-Bashir partner with Islamists with the eventuality that they may eventually take control? Now, this has been a political alliance that he's had for decades, but he's increasingly relying on Islamist support for his staying in power. And now that people are starting to die outside of his government palaces, 
I don't know how long that he'll actually be able to maintain control in Khartoum. Now, to compare that against Algeria, the army asked for the president of Algeria to remove himself, but Algeria already went through a decades-long civil war in the 70s and the 80s. And the one thing that the uh, president, who has now resigned, Bouteflika, was able to keep in Algeria was a peace backed by the army there. Both Sudan and Algeria, Sudan having been a satellite colony of the United Kingdom, Algeria having been a uh, principality of the French government until 1960, have their colonial past. But the difference here is that Algeria already had their civil war a few decades ago. Sudan had theirs as well, with South Sudan splitting off the Darfur genocide and Khartoum trying to keep power. But the one issue is, is, is that the leader who led Sudan during their civil war is still in control. The leader who led Algeria after their civil war is now out of power, and we may see a successful transition to what I hope will be a working government in that country. More after these messages. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Century Radio, back here on WWBB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. I am broadcasting live from New York City as we find ourselves on our third segment right below at the top of the hour before we get into the second half of our program, welcoming Tzvi Khan, a senior fellow from the... Uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, to talk about President Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's latest decision to designate the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran, the entire army unit itself, as a foreign terror organization. But before we get to that at 1030, I encourage all of you to join in and listen to that interview, which I think will be very exciting, is to turn towards Turkey. We now have President Tayyip Erdogan, uh, 
who we have spoken about on this program ad nauseum on his dictatorial tendencies, on his support for malign non-democratic movements throughout the Middle East, through his oppression of the Kurdish population, his support for violent jihadist groups in Syria, his attempts to take away the rights of his own citizens, having the most amount of journalists in jail, imprisoning tycoons, even potentially faking a coup d'etat against him three years ago that took place and, and putting all the blame on a uh, member, uh, or rather a, a former member of the religious sect that he had ascribed himself to in his ascendance to power when he was mayor of Istanbul from 1994 to 1998, or rather 1994 until 2002 when he became prime minister. Uh, that's Fatula Gulen, our neighborhood to the north in the Poconos. But the reason why we're talking about Erdogan this morning is because for the first time since his ascendancy to power, 17 years of rule by President Erdogan of Turkey, he has suffered a major electoral defeat. And more than that, his urging to Turkish electoral authorities to appeal the results of this election, where it is now looking like he has lost Turkey's three major cities, both their constituent assemblies, which is equivalent to the city council, and also the mayoral races uh, in Istanbul, Ankara, and Izmir, he is uh, showing that the main opposition Republican People's Party, the CHP, was able to maintain control, or rather to kick AKP, that's Erdogan's party, the AKP Justice and Development Party, out of power in these major city centers. And the reason why this is significant is, is twofold. First, Erdogan's party was able to come to control in the late 1990s and early aughts by getting control in municipal elections in cities that they lost two weeks ago. The second reason why this is significant is because it demonstrates that Erdogan is politically vulnerable when he himself stated that the future of the mandate that he has and his party has in leading Turkey would be dependent on the results of these municipal elections. So Erdogan set a bar too high for him to be able to pass, and his opposition was able to galvanize enough of their support to show that Erdogan is actually politically vulnerable. And I would even go so far as to say that this will be the beginning, not necessarily of the end of the AK party's power in Turkey, but the end of their monopoly of power in Turkey. Now, we have not seen the dirty tricks that Erdogan has been known to pull out of his back pocket in terms of fighting back against this political surge against him. But you could definitely expect there to be some unforeseen events in Turkey that may not be so democratic, that may go against the electoral ambitions and, and, and will that the Turkish people exhibited in these municipal elections. But just to read the uh, report from the Globe and Mail, uh, to give you a little bit more background on, on the exact uh, definitive case of what happened on March 31st, I'd like to read from it. President Erdogan's AK party will demand a new vote in Istanbul, the senior party official said on Tuesday after its bid was rejected for a citywide recount of the March 31st mayoral election results that appeared to hand its party a defeat. Initial results 
show the main opposition, Republican People's Party, CHP, narrowly winning control of Turkey's biggest city, bringing an end to the 25-year rule there by the AKP and its Islamist predecessors. Since the vote, the AKP has filed a series of requests for recounts in the city. Overnight, the High Election Board rejected a request to recount all votes across 31 of Istanbul's districts, the party's representative said. The Elections Board will only recount 51 ballot boxes spread across 21 of the city's total 39 districts. The AKP called this decision unfathomable. It's not nice to be on the losing side, is it, Erdogan? And finally, we see himself exhibiting a little bit of weakness, and maybe people have stopped buying into his conspiracy theories. After our next break, we'll be joined by Tzvi Khan, Senior Fellow at FDD, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Tune in. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that so while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. We're now joined by someone that I've for a very long time, hope to have on this show, and it's especially appropriate that he's joining us this morning, considering the news coming out of the Trump administration with an announcement on Wednesday, on Monday, this past Monday, to brand the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of the nation-state of Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, as a foreign terror organization. According to the Wall Street Journal, the decision which could be announced and was announced on Monday followed months of deliberation, marking the first time that an element of a foreign state has been officially designated a terrorist entity. The Trump administration has designated Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a foreign terror organization. Uh, Tzvi Khan is a senior Iran analyst at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's previously worked as a senior policy analyst at the Foreign Policy Initiative, where he was published extensively on Iran's nuclear program and regional ambitions. He's also the former assistant director for policy and government affairs at APAC, the American Public Affairs Committee, and has been published in Foreign Affairs, the National Review, the American Interest, 
and the New York Post. Svi, welcome to the program. Svi, can you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Okay, uh, so Svi, give us your take on what the designation of the IRGC as a foreign terrorist entity means for U.S. policy and the wider spectrum of its pivot from the Iran nuclear deal, now putting maximum pressure on Iran. What made this decision uh, happen, and what does it mean for U.S.-Iranian relations? Well, I think this is a long um, overdue step. Um, you know, as you mentioned, um, the United States has never before designated uh, a branch of the military um, of another country as a terrorist organization. But if there's any organization that deserves it, um, it is um, the IRGC. And, you know, I think when we talk about Iran, um, you know, we're accustomed, as you mentioned, to talk about it, uh, you know, as a nation state, this is the country of Iran, here's its military, and we're just designated, sanctioned a branch of its military. Um, but I think that I wouldn't look at it quite that way. I think it's more important to view the regime as a revolutionary movement. Um, it's a fundamentally ideological movement. It's uh, it's expansionist, and it sees itself as its mission. It sees its mission as one of um, promoting, you know, dominating the Middle East and reshaping it in accordance with its vision of radical Shiite um, Islam. Um, and this is something that doesn't necessarily. Uh, this is has no real precedent in um, uh, Iranian history. I mean. When you look at the other nations, countries in the Middle East, uh, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, these are mostly artificial borders. Um, but Iran has a national identity that goes back um, millennia. And so when we think of um, the regime in Iran, um, the Islamic, specifically the Islamic Republic um, of Iran, um, it's best to think of them, I think it's exactly right to be thinking of this as a terrorist group. Um, as, as an illegitimate regime. Um, and that's why I think when, by calling them a terrorist organization, we um, simply recognize and acknowledge um, the reality. Now, what this designation does is that it makes um, it a criminal offense um, for anyone to provide, anywhere in the world, to provide uh, material support to um, the IRGC. And I think this is going to have um, a rather strong impact on uh, really anybody in the world in terms of doing business uh, with the IRGC. Um, they're going to be subject now um, to much more severe uh, U.S. penalties if they do. And I think this is going to be uh, just isolate Iran even more. Um, and I think it's an important step in the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign uh, as part of his larger goal to really change the regime's calculus in terms of saying, look, you can either sponsor terrorism, you can try to take over the region, you can try to threaten our allies. Um, but if you do that, there's going to be a real cost. And ultimately, you're going to have to choose. Do you want to survive? Do you want your economy to crumble? Do you want to, um, do you want to get yourself out of international isolation? Well, if you do, you're going to have to start to change. And I think this is an important step in forcing Iran to get closer to that choice. I'd like you to respond to an editorial that came out in the Washington Examiner, uh, I think yesterday, mm -hmm. where they state the following. The Revolutionary Guard controls vast swaths of, Iran, of Iran's economy from the energy industry to telecommunications. This gives them control over a feudal system with which to distribute resources to its supporters and fund its aggression. But it's worse than that. Because the Revolutionary Guard manages its business interests poorly and with disregard for the public interest, 
Its feudalism has turned Iran's economy into an inefficient behemoth, preventing market entry and competition, the revolutionary guard insurance that is the necessary one-stop shop for businesses and individuals alike. My question to you is the following. If the IRGC has such a chokehold on the Iranian economy, will this designation hurt Iranians who otherwise can only do business with the IRGC? Because, as the editorial said, it's a one-stop shop for most of Iran's economy. Well, there's no question that sanctions like these are going to have an impact um, on ordinary Iranians and um, on the country as a whole. I think that's inevitable um, with any uh, any sanctions regime that's as comprehensive and that's as crippling um, as the ones we're uh, imposing now. Um, but I think what's been striking, um, and we've seen this over the last uh, you know year and a half, ever since protests began in late 2017, is that the Iranian is that the Iranian people have been directing uh, their anger uh, primarily at uh, the regime itself and not not at the United States. Um, you know the conventional wisdom among many people in Washington was that the sanctions was that U.S. sanctions uh, would uh, unify the Iranian people with the regime and would they would ally themselves against the United States and that rather than turn against the regime, they would turn against the United States. But that's actually not what has happened at all. In fact, one of the most uh, prominent slogans that we've seen in the protests in Iran over the last year um, is America is not the enemy. Our enemy is not. Our enemy is right here. This we've we've heard this constantly uh, on the Iran on Iranian streets. And I think at the end of the day, the Iranian people recognize that the reason for their predicament, the reason they're facing um, such problems, is because they are governed by a regime who has prioritized its revolutionary ambitions, um, its expansionary goals, its wars overseas, its threats against Israel and the United States and the region. Um, they prioritize these goals and they've invested billions of dollars into these goals um, rather than into um, building a better life um, for their people. Um, so I, I, and I think the government in Iran, the regime in Iran, um, recognizes this, which is why um, all they can really do and all we've really hear, heard from them is just a lot of uh, bluster um, and threats. But in reality, they know they're in a much weaker position. Uh, they don't have a, a clear strategy to fight back against the United States. And I think that's exactly where uh, we should want them right now. So being cognizant of the fact that this may hurt the Iranian people, but also the point that you were able to illustrate that the protests against the regime that started in December of 2017 uh, in Mashhad, a working class city in the northeast of the country, which have spread to some 90 Iranian uh, principalities, some cities, some uh, uh, villages, it's really become a national movement led by workers and, and the merchant class, if you will. There was these protests that took place in the Central Bazaar, the Grand Bazaar in Tehran. The, the last time that protest really took place there that were of political significance was when the Bazaar went against the Shah in 1979. And it seems like the Iranian people realize that this economic chokehold that's being put on the Iranian economy is directed at encouraging them to have some sort of soft upheaval of the, the mullahs in uh, Coleman in Tehran and the other areas of Shia uh, uh, dominance and the military entity that they created after the revolution to support them rather than trying to target the Iranian people in the pocket. This is almost an incentive for them to exercise more civil disobedience. But when we talk about the Iranian opposition, can you give us a little bit more detail 
on who exactly that consists. We, we know about the Revolutionary Guard Corps. We know about the besieged paramilitary militia. We, we're very aware of the theocratic class, if we call it, whether it's the uh, Assembly of Experts, the Guardian Council, the Majil. Um, but what bodies, what political uh, entities, what interest groups comprise the main Iranian opposition in country against the IRGC and their theocratic masters? Well, you've asked the million-dollar question, and it's a very important one. Um, the fact is that there's no clear um, organized opposition right now um, in Iran. Um, the protest movement over the last year uh, has had no clear leader. Um, you know, this contrasts starkly with, I think, the 2009 protests, where um, you know this, which was triggered primarily by the regime's attempts to steal um, the uh, presidential election. There, you had the other presidential candidates who were the de facto um, leaders of these movements, of uh, these protests. But you don't really have that um, in, uh, within Iran itself um, today. And um, if the regime uh, were to fall, um, we really don't know um, what would replace it um, or, uh, or who would be you know, at the head. Um, you know, there, are, there are opposition movements um, outside um, of Iran, um, you know, you have the Reza Pahlavi, the, um, the, the former the son of the Shah, um, who is one prominent um, opposition leader. Um, you also have uh, the national, the MEK, the National Council for Resistance of Iran. Um, there's been some talk or some indications that the Trump administration, or certainly some members of the administration, like John Bolton, uh, has been supporting um, the MEK. I think that would not be uh, a very good idea. Um, because I think that MEK does have a history of terrorism as well as uh, no, no meaningful support um, within uh, Iran itself. Um, so at the end of the day, we know we, you know, it's it's an open question. Um, we we don't know what's going to happen, um, what's going to happen next. Um, but I think, that, but I do think that as far as U.S. policy is concerned, um, I think the status quo uh, it, it is unacceptable. I think as long as we uh, there can never really be stability in the region without the current regime, with the current regime um, in power. And I think we have to take the long view and search for ways and do what we can um, to weaken um, this regime and even collapse it if we're ever going to really um, have a better day in Iran. And if we can go back to 2003 with the collapse of the Iraqi regime, uh, which was done through uh, an action of political violence with the U.S. invasion of that country under the Bush administration, a similar problem uh, presented itself. We had L. Paul Bremer and the Coalition Provisional Authority uh, bringing in some Iraqi expats who had been gone from the country for decades, Ahmed Shalabi and his group and a few other groups from uh, Iran and, and then some who were in the United States. And they eviscerated the uh, Iraqi regime, or let's call it the middle management of the Ba'athists, by having a debathification process. So is it legitimate to ask the question that if the U.S. government is seeking to up nonviolent economic pressure on Iran right now and the IRGC and its affiliates, that it would be incumbent upon them to have a soft regime change policy in place to provide a viable alternative to who could take over a, a legitimate or meaningful opposition in that country? Uh, should the IRGC feel the bite of this to go to the extent where they might lose influence and there might be a counter-revolution against them? 
I mean, I think it's I think it's it's imperative that we be prepared for any eventuality. Um, I think this is a question that the Trump administration is going to have to grapple with. Um, for the time being, um, you know, the Trump administration's position, at least uh, outwardly or publicly, uh, is that they're not seeking regime change; that they're seeking a change uh, in behavior on the part of the regime. They're seeking uh, a better uh, nuclear deal. Um, you know, whether that's simply a cover for uh, a broader regime change policy or whether they're sincere about that, I know I can't speak with any confidence. Um, but, um, you know, if their goal is to collapse the regime, then yes, they're going to have to start thinking about that um, and they're going to have to have a plan in place. Um, you know, I, I think, in, you know, it's often compared um, to the situation uh, in Iraq. Um, you know, when people hear the term regime change, they often, you know, the first thing people say is, oh, look what happened in Iraq. How could we pursue the same policy um, in Iran? And I think there are a number of differences between the two situations. I mean, first and foremost, nobody's talking about um, putting U.S. boots on the ground um, in Iran. But more to the point, um, there, you know, unlike Iraq, there is, as I mentioned earlier, a, a strong national identity. Uh, in Iran today, uh, in, uh, that goes back millennia within Iran. Um, this is a proud nation. They remember. They certainly, ha while it's an overwhelmingly young population, there's still a strong historical consciousness of their role in history, um, and that I think creates a basis for unity um, that didn't necessarily um, exist in the case of Iraq. You know, and in Iraq, you also didn't have the kind of mass protests preceding the invasion um, the way you do uh, today um, in Iran. Speedy, if I could so, just uh, push back a little sure. bit on that first point. Iran right now is maybe 50% Persian in terms of the way mm -hmm. in which we look at the minority groups and the majority groups that are in the borders of the current polity of Iran. You also have Kurds, Azeris, Baluchis, Lors, Uzbeks. You have the uh, one majority Arab population that's in the southwest of the country. Um, when you're speaking about a proud Persian identity, are you only speaking about the 50% which are historically Iranian, or are you referring to these minority groups as well? And, and, and if you're bifurcating between the two, do you think that there may be uh, an opportunity here to, I don't want to say downsize Iran, but to give more autonomy to these other oppositionists that represent different minority groups, not not just those that are political oppositionists, but those who have a certain affinity towards their unique ethnic and, in some cases, religious heritage? Um, well, I think as far as the Persian identity goes, you know, I can't give you exact you know, numbers or figures, but I do think it extends um, far beyond just um, the 50 percent. Um, you know, you know, obviously you have these other identities and these other uh, religious and ethnic affiliations, but um, they, these groups still have a historical memory of living uh, within Iran um, of a different nation, um, of, some, of a life that preceded um, this regime that was fundamentally different um, from the situation um, they're facing today. Um, so I, I think that, you know, it's certainly possible that if the regime um, were, were to fall, you know, things will get worse before um, it gets better. Um, there may very well be chaos. We, we um, don't know. Um, but uh, I think nonetheless that um, we have to take a long view in thinking about, um, you know, what, what the situation will be if we allow uh, the current regime to stay in power in the long term. 
Um, and I, you know, as far as you know, whether there can be separate you know versions of autonomy for different groups, you know, I think that's a question that the people of Iran um, will have to decide. I don't think it's going to be the role of the United States to force um, any one vision upon um, the country. But we should be prepared to facilitate um, a move to free elections um, and a way for the for the country to to chart a path forward on its own terms um, that does impose a threat um, to its neighbors um, or to the or to the United States. And, and I think um, even uh, when you look at the divisions that do exist um, against uh, within Iran, um, the overwhelming majority. Um, uh, of the Iranian people do not share um, the regime's expansionary ambitions or the regime's Islamist um, ideology. They want um, their government to focus uh, on the people at home. Um, they don't share this obsession with destroying Israel or acquiring nuclear weapons. That's not the kind of life um, they want um, for their people. Um, and I think our job at the United States is we can't force any one vision uh, on them, but we should be uh, prepared to help, and we should be ever doing everything we can to weaken um, the current regime. And I think uh, the IRGC designation uh, is a key step and a key way of doing that. And we do speak about the IRGC designation and sort of this uh, binary pattern of the U.S. pulling out of the nuclear deal, the U.S. imposing sanctions on the IRGC and its affiliates. But there are other actors, including the uh, P5 plus one, we, we talk about the uh, four and then the plus one, which have created an alternative mechanism to be able to do deals with Iran that goes against the U.S. sanctions, which have been re-implemented on that state. You have Russia, which has, which has its own interests. They've just signed a major energy deal to uh, divide the Caspian Sea. You have the Chinese with their um, Silk uh, Road plan that's, that's going forward. How do you think these other actors outside of the U.S.-Iranian uh, sort of tunnel vision that we're often used to speaking about this are going to react, not just to the IRGC designation, but the larger sanctions regime that the U.S. has reimposed on Iran? And what are these countries doing to either comply with it or to fight against it? Well, there's no question that um, uh, other countries are very unhappy with what the Trump administration is doing now. Um, the international community, the rest of the P5 plus one, um, overwhelmingly supported the nuclear deal. They invested years of, of efforts into this, and, and they've been fighting tooth and nail against the Trump administration's policies. Um, at the end of the day, though, um, there's really not a whole lot they can do to weaken um, the sanctions regime, because even if individual governments uh, you know, in Europe example, um, you know, want um, to continue doing business in Iran, and they're certainly doing everything they can to make that happen, like by establishing uh, alternate um, economic exchanges for Iran to work through. Um, but the fact of the matter is that um, most companies in, Iran, uh, in Europe, um, regardless of what their own governments think, just don't want to take um, the risk of doing business um, with Iran, um, given um, the sanctions with the United States. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, the uh, the IRGC is deeply uh, embedded uh, within uh, Iran's economy. Um, they have a, a range of front companies um, that are actually serve to mask their true role. Uh, a huge range of off the book subsidiaries um, with tentacles throughout the country. And so, as a practical matter, any country that does um, any European company that does business with Iran may even if on paper they might seem like they're not an IRGC entity, um, may actually have off-the-book ties to the IRGC. 
and that's going to put a huge risk um, for those companies. And at the end of the day, um, you know, if they you know, if they have to choose between the U.S. economy and the struggling Iranian economy, they're instantly going to choose um, the U.S. economy. Um, and that's actually precisely what we've seen uh, since the U.S. withdrawal from uh, the nuclear deal. Um, most of these companies are not going um, into Iran, and I think the um, IRGC designation is going to even further um, deter them now. Um, that doing business with Iran isn't just a sanctionable, uh, isn't just a violation of sanctions, but it's also a criminal um, offense. And um, uh, so, you know, they they can fight against it, they can criticize it, they can shout about it, um, but at the end of the day, it's going to boil down to the money. They're going to do what their economic interests uh, require them to do, and that means leaving Iran. So we've talked largely about non-kinetic responses that the U.S. government has exercised vis-a-vis the Iranian regime and its attempts to get it to reform and comply with U.S. priorities and national security objectives in the region. But often when Iran is the subject of non-kinetic pressure, it lashes out with its proxies. Hezbollah in Lebanon, its actions that it takes through its Al-Quds Brigade, not Brigade, but Al-Quds Division from the IRGC overseas, Qasem Soleimani and his wide network of influence throughout the Middle East and the rest of the world. What can we expect from Iran in the wake of this designation in terms of acting out against American interests, both in the region and across the globe? Well, there's certainly been um, a lot of doomsday predictions about this. There was actually, you know, a strong debate within the administration um, over the last several months about whether to proceed with this uh, designation because they were very concerned um, that it could lead to a military or kinetic response um, from Iran. Um, at the end of the day, I don't, I disagree with that logic, or I don't think it should have. Dis- I think the Trump administration nonetheless made the right call because, uh, at the end of the day, Iran has been. Uh, attacking the United States or U.S. interests and our allies and conducting terrorism um, for years with or without um, any particular um, trigger. Um, And I think what the history um, of U.S.-Iranian relations indicate, particularly um, under the Obama administration, is that weakness um, or inaction um, is itself provocative. Um, It was precisely because um, the Obama administration lifted all those sanctions um, under the nuclear deal and um, was unwilling to really push back against any of its non-nuclear aggression um, after the nuclear deal, that Iran got the message that it can continue this malign behavior uh, with impunity, that it could expand it, that it continue it can continue investing even more billions of dollars more um, in supporting its proxies um, throughout the Middle East. Um, so I, I think actually what we're doing now um, is actually a way to even um, push back and further Um, deter the Iranians um, from um, engaging in that kind of malign conduct. And while, sure, there's always the chance that they could um, uh, engage terrorism or or pursue any sort of malign activity, uh, I don't think um, the chances of that are significantly going to increase um, as a result of this designation. On the contrary, I think um, we're going to further paralyze, it's going to have the effect of further paralyzing uh, Iran um, and um, and demonstrating that, you know, and I think injecting further fear into the regime that if they challenge the United States, there might be even worse consequences to come. Speak on, Senior Fellow at FDD. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be with you. Have a great day.
you heard everybody, Iran is on its back end. We're finding that the U.S. has increased pressure. And the last time that the U.S. put tremendous pressure on another country because of its national security goals, it led Iran to suspending its nuclear program in 2003 after the U.S. invasion of that country. And perhaps now that Trump has abandoned Obama's policy of political, economic, and hegemonic equilibrium in the Middle East, which actually was an invitation to Iran to further strengthen its proxies, we might just see the opportunity for a non-kinetic, non-military, low-intensity but high economic price to be paid by the Iranian government, its subsidiaries, and all of the theocrats that are ruling that country to encourage them to reform. I'd like to thank Delaney Janchik for making sure this program happened this morning, Lisa Barbunis, our Director of Communications, and to all of you, our listeners, here on WWDB 860 AM. I'm Greg Roman, reporting live from New York, back in Philadelphia tomorrow, wishing all of you a wonderful week, and we'll have more coming next Wednesday. Have a great day.